Find your seats, and if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as we get ready to enter into our time of study of God's Word, I am going to open us up in a prayer that we would have receptive hearts and that we would listen to the words of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you for meeting us here in this place, for preserving your word and bringing it before us this morning. And we ask humbly, Lord, to to take your word and to pierce our hearts, to, to drive it deep that it may take root and grow and blossom in us, bearing fruit in our lives, the fruit of your spirit and power and resurrection in our lives. And we ask that you would allow us to be receptive, that things that need to change would change, that, that hearts would be softened to your word, and that you would transform us in your tender, loving kindness. And all of these things we pray, amen. As we get started this morning, before we get to the text, which there is a lot of it, I just ended up writing John 11, because that's basically what we're going to be reading through today. We'll be trying to go through it at a good clip. But I want to help set the scene a little bit as we get started, remind us of where we've come from, and remind us of the patterns that we have. The temptation, especially with familiar passages in the scriptures, is that we view them almost in isolation from their greater context of the book that they come in. And so it would be tempting to take a story like the resurrection of Lazarus, which we're going to be reading about today, and you can easily slide that into a devotional reading and forget about everything that came before it in the book of John and forget about everything that comes right after it. And so in order to try and avoid that, I want to remind us a few things. So in the, I want to start by talking about the pattern that we see over and over again in John's gospel. We've been talking about it for several weeks now. It's not a new pattern, but it's one that does happen over and over again. The first thing is that Jesus often will start by performing a sign or giving some kind of teaching, right? He's either having a conversation with an individual, and so he'll say something, right? John chapter 3, you've got to be born again. That's immediately followed by people don't understand. They don't get it. They don't know what he's talking about. Either he's using kind of obscure language, or they just don't. Don't get it in their own ignorance, in their own set way of thinking. They can't comprehend what it is that he's saying. And so then Jesus will go deeper. He'll, he'll press the issue even further. Either he'll kind of double down on the language that he's using, or he will push further. He'll explain. He'll try and bring people to that next level when they don't understand. And ultimately, what we see after this is that there's always a division that happens immediately after. In fact, if you were to look in almost every chapter of the book of John up to this point, there is some kind of division that happens among the people. That there are people who believe, and then there are people who reject. Who say, he's got a demon. He can't possibly be the Messiah. Can anything good come from this man? Every time I went and I was going back and I thought, well, how many times did they reject him? And I was like, okay, well, you know, we're in chapter 11. How about chapter 10? Yes. Okay. How about chapter 9? Yes. Okay. How about chapter 8? Yes. Okay. How about chapter... And then you get to the chapter 1 and you realize that all of this has been the pattern from the beginning. In fact, John himself, in the opening of the gospel, before he gives us any scenes, 
states that it's going to be exactly like that. And so I want to give us kind of two framing passages for us to keep in mind for all of the book of John, but especially as today we approach chapter 11. The first is in John chapter 1, 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right in the very beginning of John's gospel, he makes it very clear, most people, even his own people, are going to reject him. But those who believe receive life. But it's not a surprise when most people reject him. But those who believe will receive life. There are some people who believe. And then in John chapter 20, which we haven't gotten there yet, but we're going to read it right now. John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31, John says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I want you to understand these two different things because every passage in the entire book of John should be framed by them. That people are either going to reject or believe, and this is written so that you'll believe. So you here this morning, as we are reading chapter 11, you're going to see that there are going to be people who believe and there's going to be people who reject. But this is written not so that you would know about the people who don't believe and the people who do believe, but so that you will believe, so that you will understand and that you will trust in Christ. And so with that framework in mind, we're going to go ahead and we're going to start working our way through this passage. We're going to kind of go through quickly. I'm going to pause here and there, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the things that we want to notice as we're going through. But basically what we're going to do is we're going to work through the entirety of the text for today, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some of the things that we need to understand and we need to really hold on to for our lives today. So with that in mind, we're going to begin here with the first 16 verses of chapter 11, and what we see here is a setup for everything that is going to follow, right? The setup. I broke it into nice little categories for you guys to remember. All right, the setup. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Remember our pattern, right? Says one thing, don't understand. Jesus told them, Plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So let us go to him. Verse 16, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So we have this setup. There's a man called Lazarus, and it's a person that Jesus has a very familiar relationship with, that Mary and Martha, they came to be followers of Christ very early on in his ministry. They were well acquainted. They often opened their house, and in fact, we see this in other gospel accounts that they frequently had a place. It was like a second home to Jesus, and it was right nearby Jerusalem, so any time that he was going to Jerusalem for all the festivals, for all the teachings, he would stop right there. He would stop in Bethany. He would dine with them. He would stay with them. They was, these were beloved people to Jesus. And indeed, John reemphasizes that several times through the words of Mary and Martha themselves as they're seeking to summon Jesus. But also he tells them, yeah, by the way, Jesus loves them. I just, you just need to remember this. Jesus loves them. Okay? He really does care about them. He really is not uh, excited about their suffering, but this is all for the glory of God and for the glory of the Son. This is made explicit to us in the setup that it's not going to end in death, but also Lazarus did die, but this is ultimately for the glory of God and so that the disciples will believe. Now, disciples don't really get it. They don't really understand what's going on. I'm sure that Mary and Martha don't understand at this point, and we'll see as we continue to read that they don't get it at this point. They have some ideas. They're closer than probably most people. But Jesus is demonstrating something here that is extremely important for them. After we have the setup, we come into the next set of verses here, which I would call the confessions. One from one of the sisters, and one from Christ himself. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to read these next 10 verses, starting in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, which, by the way, if you do the math, all right, the two-day delay, that's not a difference between whether or not he makes it there before Lazarus is dead. Just an interesting note. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Two confessions here in, in the midst of it, Martha's response to Christ, but Christ's confession about himself is indeed the central point. And if you only get one thing out of the entirety of the text, this is the thing to take away with. This, this is the truth. This is everything in the rest of the chapter points back to this point, that Jesus is the resurrection, a very present tense power right in the midst of the people in our hope today. He comes before them, and, and Martha comes, and I, I want to give her props because she's so often kind of undercut, and we like to think that Mary was the more spiritual of the two, but Martha comes with a very hard confession to make, which is that even though this bad thing happened to me, I still am going to follow you and still going to love you, essentially is what she's saying. I know that you're still the one to be with, Jesus even though this bad thing happened to me. And if you were with me, I don't, really, I don't understand how all this works, but I'm still committed to following you. Even in the weakness and the insufficiency of her faith at this point, she knows that much, and she's committed to that. But it is insufficient. It is inadequate. And Jesus does almost cut her off in the thinking that she has. Right? Well, yeah, I know one day there's going to be hope. And, and, and I know that ultimately there's going to be a resurrection. She didn't understand. And Jesus brings forth a confession, one of the I am statements, a double emphasis on who he is, the resurrection. And two things that I want you to consider as we go through the rest of this text, two sides of the same coin on the statement. The first is that there is no resurrection without Jesus. And in our culture, there's many references to the idea of a life after death, of resurrection. In fact, there are so many plots and story devices that are often used that play around with this idea of resurrection. It's a very welcome idea into the average life of the average person. But they keep Jesus out. You can't do that. There is no resurrection apart from Jesus. He is the resurrection. But Additionally, you can't have Jesus without resurrection. And many of us, as believers, are in need of repentance because we live our lives with Jesus as if the resurrection is far away. As if our hope is just one day, someday in the future. 
as if he has no effect and no power on the world around us or on the steps that we take through our lives. All of us have done this. And we are in need of a stern and bold reminder that he is the resurrection. That for those of us who have declared Christ as our king, we have said the resurrection, the resurrected one, he is my king. I am ruled by the resurrection. I am bought and purchased by the blood of the resurrection. And so every step and every moment that I spend with Christ is, the, is time with the resurrection in my life. And that is a power and a comfort to us wherever we find ourselves. But I believe this needs to be pushed further and deeper into our hearts. And indeed, John doesn't stop there. He continues on with the story. And so let's go on. And I want you to see the sign. Jesus makes the statement. He says, this is how you're going to know. See, this, what I'm about to do, this is pointing to the truth that I just said. I am the resurrection. You want to know how? I'm going to show you. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but it was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I want to pause here for just one second. Again, the point is Jesus is the resurrection. This is the most important thing. But I do want to make a note here that this verse, verse 33 specifically, is not a very helpful translation. That when it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit, that this is a negative connotation, right? It's not, oh, I'm so sad. He's actually more of a, a spirit of indignation or of anger that's happening here. Now, he's not angry at Martha. He just had a conversation with Martha. There was no deeply moved in the spirit in that part. He's not angry with Mary, it's when he sees the weeping of the Jews and the weeping of Mary that this happens. And you need to understand at this point in time in the culture of the Jews, this idea of weeping, it's really more akin to the idea of wailing. It's showing the grief. And the greater the show of your grief for the dead, the more honor you're paying to the dead. And so this is an obsession with honoring Lazarus in his death. And an unbelief towards Jesus, which we will see develop further as the passage goes on. Remember that John has used the idea in this group of the Jews constantly to point out to the people who reject Christ. Now, there are some of the Jews, they believe. 
But the Jews reject Jesus in John's gospel. All right? We're talking more than just about people groups. We're talking about how John uses and categorizes categorizes the different people, right? The Jews are often synonymous with the Pharisees. They're often synonymous with the people who are loyal to the Pharisees, not loyal to Christ. We're going to see this play out over the course of the passage, but I just want you to understand this because Jesus is upset, but he's not sad. Again, he already said, I know Lazarus is dead. It's not going to end in death. I am the resurrection. Certainly, there is a place and a time to say that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, with our sorrows, and with our brokenness. All of these things are true. But I want us to see here that Jesus is also frustrated because he knows what is about to happen. And that even in the face of this evidence and this sign, these people are still going to reject him. And that ultimately, he's troubled because he knows that this leads to the cross for him and the suffering that is at hand. And indeed, those are the other times when the use of the word troubled for Jesus come about, is as he contemplates his own suffering. So, sorry, that's a big aside, I know. Again, the point is he's the resurrection. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, indignant, angry, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Three commands he gives here in the midst of this. Two of them to the doubting onlookers, right? He, he involves the people who are ultimately going to reject him in the sign that is perhaps the greatest sign that he's performed up to this point or would perform again other than his own personal resurrection from the dead. We would be tempted to think that we are going to be much better than these people, but the reality that we see demonstrated over and over and over again in the book of John is that it's not for lack of evidence that you choose not to believe or that you choose to reject Christ but it's for the preservation of your own kingdom and for the pursuit of your own agenda. Jesus here demonstrates what it means to say that he is the resurrection, that he is king even over death. And even the thing which 
all would recognize is the end of hope is no end to the hope that is in Christ. It's commonplace in our culture and in our world to say that death is the end. How many shows have we watched, how many movies where you see the depiction of the doctor, right? He's trying to save the person and then they say, I'm calling it. And they always take off the gloves at that point. Right? I'm calling it, takes off the gloves. That's how you know they're really calling it. If they keep the gloves on, maybe they're going to do something. But as soon as they take the gloves off, right? No, it's not the end. It's not the end of the hope for Christ. He's the resurrection. And so he demonstrates to it. Now, what happened to Lazarus after this? He died again. One of the only people ever, I think the only person ever, as far as I'm aware, who died twice. I don't know if that's an honor or a bummer, but that's what happened to Lazarus. But as he believed in Christ, even though he died, he never died. He lived in Christ, that Christ is the resurrection, the hope. And we just think, as we see this, four days dead in the tomb, he comes walking out at the voice, the voice that was instrumental in the creation of all of the world, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the Jews had been waiting for. How could they respond with anything less than awe and wonder, than reverence and bowing down before such a powerful sign of the one who stood before them? But we see the divide in verse 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Ultimately, there would be a council. I'm not going to read all of the end of chapter 11 for us, but there's a council the Pharisees discuss what to do, and they make a plan that Jesus is going to die. And they started plotting to figure out how to make that happen. It's a turning point in the gospel. And here, in fact, we do see the entry into the end. From chapter 12 onward is the, basically the final week of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. But from here, they go from simply having the impulse to wanting to take this guy out for talking bad about them to, all right, we've got to make a plan. It's not enough to just say, hey, when this happens, let's just all pick up stones and maybe we can kill him right then and there. We need a plan if we're going to take this Jesus out. This is starting to become a problem. And their obsession is with their own place, their own country, their own prestige. You can read all of this in the end of chapter 11. I encourage you to do that. A division, even in the midst of all of this. Even if someone should raise from the dead, those who reject God would seek to kill that person over again. And in fact, they talk about it in chapter 12. They're like, not only do we need to kill this Jesus guy, we, should, we better take out Lazarus too. You're going to kill the guy who just rose from the dead? Yeah, we got to get rid of him. 
all according to, ultimately to the glorification of Christ and his plan that he would ultimately be glorified through his crucifixion, his suffering, his death, and then his resurrection. But it was a rejection of who he was, a rejection of the resurrection itself. I want us to consider a few things as we, as we close out our time this morning, now that we've read through this passage and we've considered this. The first is I want to consider three, three elements that we see in these three different parties of people that, that I would describe as faith inadequate. Uh, it's not that they had necessarily no belief at all or no conception of the truth, but that it was not full. It was not sufficient. It was not based in the truth that Christ had brought. The first group is the disciples themselves, and they come, and indeed Thomas, he gives this statement, let's go, we'll die with him. And we see a, a hopeless faith. Jesus, we're committed to you, we believe in you, we trust in you, but you know what? We're willing to just go and die with you. Not really any hope for Lazarus, not really any hope for what Jesus might do, or even really much hope in who Jesus actually was. It was insufficient. It was sad. And I wonder how often in our lives we walk that walk of these disciples in monotony and drudgery. I've just going to make it through and I'm committed Jesus I'm committed but we don't have any hope I wonder if we can really even call that faithfulness then we see Martha and, and Mary and they've got a hope but it's really distant you can almost imagine him squinting off, trying to think, trying to see, trying to take comfort. We see this a lot for us, even as, as believers in funerals. We think, ah, one day. We see the brokenness in the world around us. We think, ah, one day. Ah, you know, one day. Man, that's, that's terrible. One day. It's far away. It's not very much comfort. Then we see the third group, the Jews. They're there. They're wailing. They're trying to show their respect for this Lazarus guy. They're trying to say the right things, show the right belief, but it's an empty show. You know, a lot of these people, they would have looked just like you or I. They'd be here on Sunday mornings. They would say the right things. They may even read their Bible every day. It's just a show. I'm doing the thing because this is what I'm supposed to be doing. See? See how we're doing the thing, Jesus? See how we're showing compassion to, to Mary? Right? Isn't that loving our neighbor? See how we're doing it? It's an empty show. But if this is an inadequate picture, then what is, what is the complete? What is the true? What is the substance of this passage? And again, it comes to the confession of Christ himself about himself. I am the resurrection. 
I want to tell you three things about this statement. The first, this is a powerful hope. This is a powerful hope. When you begin to even get a glimpse of what Jesus is saying here in this statement, it should cause you to feel a chill. It should cause you to shudder a little bit at the thought of such power and majesty that is behind and in the one who is making this statement. This isn't a hope that is limp, that wishes it could do something if only it were there in time. That maybe by some serendipitous turn of events, better things will come out than worse things if he's around. As if he needed to battle and to, to wrestle to make things happen. He's got to become the resurrection. He's got to go through the training montage in order to, to overcome this obstacle that he's come up against. No, he is the resurrection. There's power in that. The second thing is that he is a present hope. There is no dividing who Christ is apart from the resurrection. And if you have Christ as yours and you are Christ, then the resurrection is yours and you are the resurrections. That changes your life knowing that such power is very much present every day, every moment, whether you consider him or not, he is there. We just recently went and saw a play at the Bible Museum. It was The Horse and His Boy, which was fantastic. I encourage you to go see it if you haven't. But uh, one of my favorite depictions in, in literature of the Jesus figure, if you will, uh, which C.S. Lewis, he considered this a depiction of Christ, was Aslan. And, and I love it because it goes in the face of our inadequate view of Jesus that so often we receive growing up, whether it's through children's Sunday school or looking at the little picture book Bibles, because a lion is scary, right? A lion is inherently powerful, and when Aslan shows up on the pages or in the play or however it is that you see the works of C.S. Lewis, there is an element of awe, an element of fear, and, and an element of hope. And it's all there all at the same time. That he's powerful and he's there. And he's a little too close for comfort, but you don't want him to back away. One of my favorite lines in it is, is one of the horses said, you can eat me. I, I would rather be eaten by you than go on any day living basically without you is, is the sentiment. You, you can just, you just eat me. I'm terrified of you. You could totally do it, but like I, I would just let it happen. I'm so in awe. I'm so amazed. I'm so overwhelmed with this idea. A powerful hope, a present 
hope in our lives. And the last thing I'll say is this. It's a reigning hope. It's a hope that pulls and changes the course of the direction of your life. That Christ is a king and that the resurrection is something that has a calling to it. A trajectory shift, transformation, change. And just as the difference is from life to death and from death to life, which would be resurrection, so is the transformation of the life of the person who becomes the believer. They are born again. They are given life where they had death. It changes everything. The Pharisees' rejection of Christ was centered on their place, their kingdom, their part, all of the stuff around them. But those who believed were transformed and they received life. I want to give us just a couple things to consider as we, as we get ready to pray and, and to close. Two things, really. Uh, two encouragements. The first, and I think we need to, to remind ourselves of this every day, because we forget. We forget. We're, we're relatively comfortable. But there's no neutral in the position of Christ. There's no neutral. Right? There are those who believe and accept and follow. That's all tied together. It's not like you can just be part of that, right? You, you're under Christ or you are actively rejecting Christ, right? You're either in the camp of the disciples who believe or you're in the camp of the Pharisees who reject and plot to kill. That's not just true for us. This is important for us to understand that this is how the world is. And as sad as it is, when you look out and you see brokenness in the world and you think, how could this happen? You've got to remember, these people would reject and kill God himself. Just as you or I would before Christ redeemed us. And so every decision and everything that you do in your life, you should have that as a as a part of your worldview, just how you see the world. You understand, yeah, you know what? The world is divided. And your options to bring more unity are either to pray that God rescues more of it, or you reject God and divide yourself from Christ. But you will either be divided from Christ or you'll be divided from the world. And that's true for every other person. There is no neutral force in this world and so what will you be dominated by what will you give yourself to where will you give your allegiance what will you direct yourself and your life to you have a responsibility as a believer to to seek christ in all things to love him as he deserves to be loved, to know he is the resurrection. He is the life. There is nothing more important in all of this world than Christ. Does that show in your work? 
Does that show in your relationship with others? Does that show in your parenting? I would rather see those closest to me know Christ, believe in him, and suffer than to see them live a prosperous life with a white picket fence, be skilled in all the jobs, more literate than all the peers in the world, and perish without Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would push deep into our hearts the truth in this confession from your own lips, that you are the resurrection, that there is not only a hope, but a powerful hope, a present hope, a real and reigning hope that is ours in Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, transform us through that hope. Let us be messengers of that hope in the world around us. That as we encounter people who are suffering, or even suffering in our own lives, that we would not say, well, one day, one day it'll be okay. But that we would point and direct our hearts and those around us to the hope that is present, that the hope that is ours now in Christ. Lord Jesus, let that hope rule in our hearts. Let it transform and give substance and abundance to our lives, that it would bring us joy even when the world would attempt to heap sorrows upon us and that that would then spread that hope, that joy to the world around us. We thank you for showing this that we may believe, that we may accept and know that you are the resurrection. Lord Jesus, seal that into our hearts. Transform us by the power of your word in this hope. And be glorified in us this day. In your name we pray. Amen.